I invite you to take out your Bibles once again and turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. As we turn to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, uh, we do thank you for your Word. It is indeed clear and true. Oh, Father, would you revive our hearts? Would you renew our minds uh, to trust in you? Father, would you give to us the bread of life that all of us, from the youngest to the oldest here today, may know the risen Christ? For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. Now, most likely, you've said this to others. Or you've been told this by others. Don't take it personally. Now, it's good advice on most occasions, isn't it? Because if we took everything personally, we'd probably never emerge from a world of hurt feelings. Because we're often... I'm often tempted to be hurt and offended by stuff that should just roll off my back. But yet, far too often, I take it personally. However, when it comes to understanding and applying the truth of God's word, you know what? You've got to take it personally. Now, while that's true for all of God's word, I think there's some places that It may be a little bit more evident than others. Now, one is the doctrine of justification by faith. Y'all may remember when we worked our way through Galatians, we were in chapter 2, and we spent a whole day or a whole service talking about taking justification by faith personally. And we kept referring to it throughout our study. Why? Because Paul says this, Notice the personal pronouns. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is there any other better preacher of the doctrine of justification by faith than the Apostle Paul? No, but for him, he didn't just preach it. He took it personally who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, another doctrine that I believe Scripture is pretty clear that we have to take personally is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, you may acknowledge it to be true. Your unbelieving, as it were, next-door neighbor, non-Christian, believes anything and everything may acknowledge that it's true. But do they believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it to the extent that it affects how you live? Do you, in other words, take the resurrection personally? You've got to. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just good news for Him. It's good news for all those people who are united to him by faith. In other words, trusting in him 
and not trusting in themselves. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news for him and it's good news for us because it takes care of some very bad news. Death. Death is relevant. Whereas the infant mortality rate varies, the human mortality rate remains 100%. I was watching a documentary the other day on uh, PBS on Benjamin Franklin. One of his many sayings, of course, is, In this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. And I believe tomorrow, right, we are aware of that certainty. Death and taxes. Cassius Clay, a well-known boxer, probably you know better by the name Muhammad Ali, grew up in Louisville, a Kentucky native. He's reported to have said, I'm scared of no one, but only scared of death. Woody Allen, the late American actor, comedian, has said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Death. Although death is inevitable, the subject of death is often unmentionable, isn't it? And I believe that the world has two basic strategies that it uses to deal with death. Deny it or try its hardest to delay it. Or maybe there's a third way just to joke about it. Indeed, when it comes to death, some live in denial. Others try to delay it, but no one can escape it. Or can they? Now, does your philosophy of life, does your operating system, does your grid, does it um, enable you to face death with peace, assurance, and quiet confidence? I was with, a little over a year ago, Pat Mastin. As she outwardly withered away, her inward life was almost renewed more and more as I spent time with her. And she had an operating system. She had a philosophy of life. She had a grid through which she saw everything, and it was through faith in Jesus Christ. Does the operating system you use when it comes to death um, rather not lead to peace, joy, assurance, but rather anxiety or fear? You know, are you afraid of death? And I think if we're honest, most of us, to one degree or another, could say we are afraid of death. But here is what the author to the letter to the Hebrews said. Through death, Jesus would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That amazing statement that through death, Jesus, through his own death, he delivers people from the fear of death that kept them enslaved in fear. And so we find in the Bible that Jesus doesn't avoid the subject of death. He, he rather talks about death. He, he talks about his own death and he talks about his own resurrection. Uh, Think about with me in the Gospel of Mark, uh, three times in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he tells the disciples that he is going to die. He's going to die. They, they, They didn't understand 
They, they found it hard to believe, but he also, remember, told them that he would be raised from the dead. And today in our text, we will find Jesus talking about his own resurrection at a time when he raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. So remember the story in chapter 11. In Bethany, there lived Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus was ill. Jesus got word, was asked to come. Jesus delayed. Lazarus died. Let's pick up in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Now when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So let's examine for the next few minutes this incident in the life and ministry of Jesus by looking first at a declaration he makes about himself, second, a decision he calls for in response, and then finally, a demonstration of his presence and power. A declaration Jesus makes about himself. I am. One of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Most of us have been to funerals. A really a go-to funeral liturgy text is, of course, John 11. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But when you step back and think about it, it's an amazing statement. I am the resurrection and the life. First, he expounds the the resurrection. I am the resurrection. It's a word about those who have died. But it's also a word about life. It's It's a word to those who are alive. So he addresses both, as it were, those who have died, those who are alive. And he speaks of two kinds of death, of course, physical and spiritual. When he makes this astounding, astonishing statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Two kinds of resurrection, two kinds of life. You know, think about eternal life, a major theme of the Gospel of John. Uh, John 3.16, whoever believes shall not perish but have what? Everlasting life. The whole purpose of the book that, that by believing you would have life in his name. And of course, 1 John picks that up as well. The assurance 
of eternal life. Jesus is speaking about resurrection, a physical resurrection at the last day because Martha and Mary are correct. There is the Jewish belief, the Jewish understanding that at the last day, there will be a resurrection from the dead. Now remember, the Pharisees believed that doctrine. The Sadducees didn't. Paul, as we went through that series in Acts, remember, used that fact about the resurrection of the dead to kind of get a, uh, a brawl going between Pharisees and Sadducees over the resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus is not just talking about physical resurrection. He's talking about a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual life. A life that once it starts, it never gives out, not just a life in the future, but a life here and now. And I think that's what many of us miss. Remember when Jesus was asked a question, he, he defined eternal life like this. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's not just life after death. It's life in him here and now. And Jesus is addressing that when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice at the center of what is said is the exclusive claim of Jesus. Because really, there is something incredibly narrow about Christianity. It's Christ alone. It's Christ alone alone. You can't get much more narrow than one person. And yet, it's also amazingly inclusive. Notice the language. Not only I am the resurrection, but whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Whoever, everyone. Isn't that amazing? That Christianity, the gospel, is both exclusive and inclusive at the same time. But given the fact that none of us, and i talking about myself, none of us are really balanced all the time, right? We err on one side or the other, right? We're all exclusive only or we're all inclusive only. And you get into problems when you're in either one of those ditches. We're called to understand that Christianity, the gospel, is both exclusive, I am, says Jesus, but it's inclusive. Whoever, everyone. Jesus' claim here means that he and he alone takes away the sting of death, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15. Why did Jesus come? Many reasons. But one reason is to put us out of our misery. Think about it. Through his resurrection, through him being the resurrection and the life, he actually puts us out of our misery through his death, through his resurrection. Now, this declaration from Jesus doesn't stand alone. You notice it's accompanied by a call for a decision. So, Jesus is calling for a response, a decision. Um, look with me in the, toward the end of John. 
John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is writing this so that people would make a decision about Jesus. And Jesus puts this in that position. Uh, Look how he says it in verse 26. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? It's addressed to Martha and it's addressed to us. It's addressed to everyone who reads this and hears us, hears it. It's unavoidable, but it's also not unanswerable. You see, Jesus is the preacher and he's asking a question about himself. It's like what he did to the disciples in the middle of Mark. Uh, Who do people say that I am? They give some answers and then he presses the point, well, who do you say that I am? He's doing that to Martha. Do you believe this? And notice, Martha doesn't abstain. Martha doesn't Check, no comment, undecided. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She says, I know. Earlier, right? In verse 24, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again. She's a faithful Jew. I know There's going to be a resurrection. But now it transitions to something different. I believe. I know. I believe. They're not the same thing. I know there's going to be a resurrection. I believe what you just told me. It's a stunning confession from Martha. Notice it's a personal confession from this To you, Jesus says, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you. She's already starting to take it personally. Christ, I believe that you're the Christ, the true ruler and the hope of Israel, the son of God, the one and only. I believe that you are coming into the world The Redeemer, it's Jesus at the woman at the well, right? John chapter 4. When that woman encounters Jesus, her life changes. She goes back to the village and she tells those who hear her about Jesus, the Redeemer. The one who has come. The one who has met her. It's a personal stand She's staking things out. Yes, Lord, I believe. It's a personal stand. You know, study after study after study has said secondhand smoke is dangerous, right? You don't have to be the one smoking. You can just be near the person smoking. It's dangerous. But here scripture is saying secondhand faith is disastrous. Second-hand faith is deadly. It's got to be first-hand. It's got to be personal. 
But it's not only a stand, it's a personal starting point of movement. Because anyone that would say, I believe, when Jesus asked that kind of question, they, um, they're coming to faith, but then they're growing in faith. You know, a couple weeks ago, some folks uh, joined the church and we did the membership vows up here. And the vows speak not only of coming to faith in Christ, but also growing in faith in Christ. Not only, as it were, justification, but also sanctification. It's a stand, but it's a starting point. You see, Martha is displaying an attitude toward Jesus because how someone responds to Jesus really does indicate their destiny, indicate their trajectory. Years ago, when I was growing up, uh, about every month, a magazine would come to our home. It was called Decision. Decision, what's that? Well, it was the magazine of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And when I uh, started growing in my faith and coming to an understanding of the doctrines of grace and, and coming home, as it were, to a reformed understanding of the scriptures and the church, you know, I, I was a little bit hesitant for that word decision. But you know what? God gives us the faith. But what do we do? We do the believing. God opens our eyes, but what do we do? We do the seeing. God opens our ears, but what do we do? We do the hearing. Martha was placed in a decision time. Do you believe this? Yes or no? Martha made a decision. And of course, Scripture is going to be clear. How could she do that? How could Lydia Follow Jesus. The Lord opened the heart. The Lord changed the heart. So Martha is placed in a position of having to decide whether she's going to base her life, whether she's going to build her life upon this one who claims that he is the resurrection and the life, or she's going to have to build it and base it on someone or something else. Now, in putting together this simple outline of our passage, I first thought it would be in this era, uh, order. A declaration, a demonstration, and then a decision. But that's not how John 11 unfolds. It's actually presented declaration, decision, demonstration. Now, why is that? Well, a decision is called for based on the declaration of Jesus, the promise of Jesus, not on a demonstration of the power of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? If I was writing this, I would go, he declares, he demonstrates, and then he calls for a decision. But that's not what happens. He declares, calls for a decision, and then demonstrates. Why? Because it's about walking by faith, not by sight. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We would read later in John 20. Peter, remember Peter? The abandoner, the denier, 
the restored man. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's Peter. You don't have to see physically in order to believe. However, notice the kindness and condescension of the Lord here. Knowing our weakness, Jesus goes on to demonstrate his presence and his power. So let's look for a moment now at a demonstration of his presence and his power. Well, what does Jesus demonstrate? His humanity. His very presence. Um, If you look down to verse 35, uh, Jesus wept. Jesus is sad. Jesus is sad. There's grief. But not only is Jesus sad, we see in verse 33 that Jesus is angry. He is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Again, in verse 38, he is deeply moved. Jesus, the human, Jesus, the man, is outraged. He's indignant. He's angry because he knows that death is an intruder. Death is a curse. Some of us are going through the book Gentle and Lowly, and we see that the one who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, you know, find rest in me. He's also the one who is angry and indignant. Jesus is fully human. He knows when to be sad. He knows when to be angry. And we have that example in Scripture of the perfect man being compassionate, being sad, being angry. Because Jesus knows that death is not a friend. Death, rather, is an enemy. Paul would say this, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. John would write in his first letter that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy and to deliver. What else does Jesus demonstrate here in Bethany at this time around the death of Lazarus? Well, not only his humanity, his presence, but his deity, his power. Remember, there's a a delay. There's a a delay for the purpose of of challenging a, a greater faith, greater glory for God. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He's been dead four days. Most commentators say that there was some Jewish practice that you didn't bury until after three days because there was this idea that the spirit didn't finally separate from the body until three days. So he's been dead three, excuse me, four days. In other words, John is saying to the, to the reader that he is really dead. He is totally dead. He is not mostly dead. He is completely dead. And what does Jesus do? He raises Lazarus from the dead That last sign in John's gospel, healing those who were blind. Here is raising Lazarus from the dead. And again, Jesus will provide his own sign through his own resurrection. And the the preachers in Acts go again and again and again 
to the death and resurrection of Jesus. John, the writer of the gospel, shows us something else as well. Not only Jesus' humanity through his presence, not only his deity through his power to raise the dead and use that as a sign of his own resurrection to come, but he shows that Jesus brings division. You see, no one can be neutral when it comes to Jesus. There can't be a no comment. There can't be an abstention. There can't be a delay. Earlier in John 10, Jesus had been speaking, and we read in verses 19 through 21 that there was a division among the people based on what Jesus said about him laying down his life and taking up his life. And then if you see where uh, in um, verse 53 of chapter 11. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You see, there are people rejoicing at the raising of Lazarus, but there are people threatened by the raising of Lazarus. I, I mean, the irony here is great, isn't it? By bringing the dead to life, by raising Lazarus, what do some people do? They begin to plot and conspire to do what? To kill Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Threatened by Jesus raising Lazarus to life. Why? Because they would lose control. They would lose power. Jesus would be more popular. And if anything, the Gospels show us, Jesus is saying, earthly power is different than true power. And they're threatened by Jesus. Jesus here in our passage is pointing to himself as the only one with the answer to the question of death and the only one with the solution to the problem of death. I remember a few years ago I heard an elected official say something like, I alone can fix it. I alone can fix it. Actually, there's only one person that in integrity and honesty and truth can say, I alone can fix it. It's Jesus. My friends, this is good news because the gospel of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which is all the content of all the sermons in Acts, as we saw, it shows us that for the Christian, death doesn't have the last word. Jesus has the last word. And what is his word? His word that for the Christian, the future becomes present. Eternal life in Jesus is here and now, not just there and then. And for the Christian, faith becomes personal because all of the blessings are found in Jesus. All the benefits, as our catechism outlines, they're found in Jesus. Nowhere else. So at the center of this is Jesus' statement, I am and his question, do you believe this? It's the only, in fact, question, uh, excuse me, statement that's followed by a question. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. 
None of those are followed by a question. I am the resurrection and the life is followed by a question. You see, this question that Jesus asked is unavoidable. But thank goodness, it's not unanswerable. My friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is is not just some doctrine for us to acknowledge as true. Think about it. If even the devils or the demons believe and shudder, Satan himself acknowledges that the, that the resurrection is true. It's not just a doctrine to acknowledge is true. Many people do. Both those who claim to be Christians and those who claim not to be Christians. They acknowledge it's true. Rather, it's a doctrine to believe and to behold. It's a doctrine to embrace. Why? Because it's personal. Because there's someone who makes a promise to you and who keeps his promise to you. My friends, when it comes to Easter and the resurrection, when it comes to the hope of eternal life after death and the assurance of everlasting life beyond the grave, you've got to take it personally. It's the only way before your death and after your death as Paul would write to the Philippian church, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The power that gets us through the dark and difficult days, days of sin and misery, confusion and chaos. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So my friends, God is asking all of us through his word this question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the power of his resurrection? Have you taken the good news of his resurrection personally? My friends, there is no other way to take it and live. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have provided a way for us that though we die, yet we shall also live. And we thank you, Father, that through faith in Christ, through union with him, we died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus' life of perfect obedience. We thank you for his sacrificial and atoning death on the cross for us and on our behalf. Father, we thank you for his victorious and triumphant resurrection, giving us assurance that he is who he said he is. Father, it is the cry of our hearts to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Father, help us not to just acknowledge a doctrine as true. Help us to run into the arms of a person and find rest and life now and forever. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.